the worship guide, page 9, if you want to use a, a book Bible. We're in John 6, if you want to use a Bible app. It's still John 6. Uh, we've been working our way slowly through John's Gospel. We've been calling it a slow hike, because like when you go on a slow hike and you say, let's stop right here and look at this. And you go, okay, that's what we're doing. Taking our time. The goal is not to get through it. The goal is to be in it. So that's what we're doing. So we've been in it for quite a while. We are in it again today. And today our passage is John 6, 14 through 29. And I have prepared myself to sit here, but we will all stand. Let's stand and read it together. After the, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. And by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near that place where people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. All right. Well, this story, Jesus walking on water, is a continuation of last week's story. Do you guys remember what that was? Jesus feeding, it's called the feeding of 5,000, but it says there was 5,000 men. Surely there were also women. Surely there were kids. So the feeding of thousands. Um, so that story is well, in one of what we could call Jesus' greatest hits, miracles. It's like one of the big ones. So is walking on water. And we see here in John that these happened right next to each other. He does the feeding people thing, and then he, um, 
And the disciples go away. He goes up on a mountain. They go into a boat across the lake. Storm comes, and then he does the walking on water thing. Now, because John's gospel, as we've seen as we've studied it, isn't necessarily always organized chronologically. It's, more, it's organized more by theme. The fact that these two stories are chronological and they're next to each other, that should draw our attention as readers. And it should remind us that we can't interpret them in isolation. We should interpret one in light of the other. So remember, in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles are called signs. Signs signify something. They, they're like, they're kind of like metaphors that proclaim meaning. So you look at a sign, you're supposed to think, what does this sign mean? And that's the thing you hold on to, right? So his miracles, in the same way, they're not just, hey, look what Jesus can do. They're signs. We're supposed to read them and look at them and think, what does this mean? What is Jesus trying to teach his disciples? What is he teaching us? What is John, the gospel writer, teaching us by writing this down? So we need to interpret this story, Jesus walking on water, in light of last week's story, Jesus feeding thousands, because they go together, okay? All right, so last week's story. If you remember last week, we learned that when Jesus fed the thousands of people, um, it says that after that, they ate their fill of the loaves. Um, well, it's, first of all, he, he took the bread and he gave thanks, and then he multiplied it, and the people ate their fill, and there were 12 baskets left over. And then the disciples gathered them, and then the people tried to make Jesus king by force, and he withdrew and went up on the hill. That's the story. And what we learned is that sign, the thing it's signifying, the thing it's proclaiming, is that Jesus didn't come into the world to give us the kingdom of God all at once. And the Christian life isn't about receiving the benefits of God's kingdom all at once. It's about receiving Jesus, Jesus himself, one day at a time, receiving our fill of him every single day as we go. Jesus, when he... Uh, gave thanks and distributed the bread. It reminds us of the communion table. And we'll see, we see later in John 6, he even says, I am the bread. <laughs> Jesus was teaching his disciples and the people around, look, you try to make me king by force, you try to get all the benefits of the kingdom, right now I'm walking away. But you bring me the faith that you have and I will give you myself. And I will give you enough of myself that you have all you need. You eat your fill. And we see the 12 baskets at the end, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 uh, apostles, this picture of the people of God. Jesus himself is enough for the people of God. And we can summarize that by saying that God is always teaching us that the Christian life is not really about getting the kingdom, it's about getting the king. We don't want to miss the king because we're trying to get a hold of this, some vision of the kingdom. So that's last time. Now Jesus teaches this whole lesson with this sign and then sends his disciples. You guys go ahead and get into that boat. I'm going to go up on this mountain to pray. I'll meet you on the other side. They get into the boat. There's this great storm 
great storm arises. Now, some of the disciples are fishermen. They're used to boats. But this was a really bad storm. And we know from uh, geography and from science that this part of the Sea of Galilee, storms could come up very quickly, and they were very, very dangerous. So Jesus sends his disciples away. It's night. They're in the middle of this boat. This big storm comes. It's big. It's scary. And they're all alone. It's interesting that Jesus had just taught them that the Christian life is all about receiving him. It's all about knowing him. And then he sends them away. That's weird. And then once they're away, everything gets terrible. And then he comes to them walking on water. They take him into the boat. All of a sudden, at least it seems from the text, miraculously, they're automatically at the place where they were going. And then they get out and Jesus teaches this lesson that the big idea is the work of God is that you believe in me. Okay, that's the story today. So how do we interpret it? Well, if God is always teaching us that the Christian life is not about taking the benefits of the kingdom, it's about receiving the king, then God also works to curate, to manage the environment of our lives so that at every turn and at every moment we would be able to see Jesus for who he is. We'd be able to receive Jesus into our life, into the boat, and we'd be able to believe in Jesus. So it's not just that Jesus is the whole point of the Christian life. It's that God is always working in the circumstances of your life. He's curating and managing the environment of your life so that at every turn, when you look at Jesus in your heart, you'll see him for who he is. That's what this story is about. Let me give you an illustration, and then I'll show you in the text how all of this makes sense. Uh, some of you have been to our house, me and Becca, and if you've been to our house, you know that we don't have a TV in our house. We actually have a projector. That's how we watch movies, and we watch soccer, and Amazon Prime, and all that stuff. We have this little projector, and it sits on a tripod, and it projects onto this blank space on our wall. Now, part of the reason we have that is because, it's number one, it's a lot cheaper than a TV. That's one reason. Uh, but one of the, maybe a bigger reason, and maybe, at least for me, the main reason we do the projector thing, uh, you guys who know me well know that I have a light sensitivity disorder. And TVs emanate, radiate light, right? Mostly blue light, which is bad for people with photophobia. And that blue light is moving all the time. Well, a projector screen actually doesn't emanate light. The screen is, is actually taking in the light from the projector. It's just a, re, it's a is it re, reflection, refraction, is that a? The light is there, but it's not shining at you. So that's part of why we use a projector. It's not, it's not the light source. And that's much easier on my eyes and on my brain as someone with clinical photophobia. Now, here's the thing. If you have a projector, you have a question, Nicholas? Yeah, I have a projector. You have a projector? Oh, okay. So you know what I'm about to tell you. With a projector, you don't just turn it on and see the thing. You have to manage the, the other ambient light in the room. 
right? Sometimes you have to turn off the overhead lights. Sometimes you have to close the curtains because the projector is not shining. So you have to bring down the other light so you can see the image clearly. Is that right? You guys have to do that? Now at our house, because I have a light sensitivity disorder, sometimes if we, have to, if we sit down and watch a whole movie, managing the light is more of a process. Sometimes we start it with maybe this lamp on over here, and then after a little bit, I have to take a break, and then we might change this over here, and then I might have to move to a different seat. It's, we're constantly curating. Okay, have that in your mind. Now, you and I are sinners. We have a righteousness disorder. It's hard for us to comprehend who God is, to take him in. So what does God do? He manages, he curates the environment of our lives so that when we look to Jesus, the perfect image of God, we see him in his glory. Kind of like we manage the light in our house. And that's what this story is about. Let me show you. First, God curates the environment of our lives. Uh, the story starts off, it says, verse 16, uh, says that, well, first of all, we have this deal with the people tried to make Jesus king by force. It says he, with, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat, set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now, in John's account, it kind of sounds like um, Jesus went to the mountain, and so the disciples went down to the boat and kind of waited, like they're waiting by the car for him to come out of Target or something. Uh, that's kind of what, it, but if we look at the Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of the story, it says that Jesus sent them to the boat. And actually, Mark's gospel says Jesus made them get into the boat. You guys, get into the boat. Go, you go, I will join you later. Jesus uses, he like tells them to do it. So they get into the boat, they go across the lake, and then John, I love John's imagery. Now, it was dark. Jesus had not yet joined them. John is telling us time is passing. It's getting darker. They're wondering what's going on. And a strong wind was blowing, and the waters are growing rough. Now, Jesus did this on purpose. He had literally just taught them that he is the bread of life. He is everything. He is their source. He is their fill. He is their, like it says in, John, in the prologue, his, their life and their light. And then he says, okay, now go away from me. And they go into the dark. They go into unsteadiness. They go into this scary place. Jesus did this on purpose. God curates the environments of our lives. Now, here in this text, we don't see this uh, being taught as, we, as much as we see it uh, being as, as an example of what, how God does this. The, the classical term for what we're talking about here is providence. Like the name of the hospitals? Providence. That's the classical term for what I'm talking about. Providence is, well, it's a classical term. Let me read you a classical definition. Um, 
This comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a classical statement of faith that is really awesome. This is the statement about providence. This, this is what we're talking about. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You guys heard of the famous Bible verse, Romans 8.28? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's providence. God is the creator. He's master over all of the universe, all of the created world. He didn't just create the world and leave it. He upholds it. He's always working on it. He's managing it, even down to the littlest blade of grass, so that his people at every turn would be able to see him and know him and trust him. In Ephesians, another famous Bible verse, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. God works out everything. God ordains everything that comes to pass. God is in absolute control of every single atom in the universe, and he manages everything for his purposes. What are his purposes? That we would see, receive, and believe in Jesus. So here in this story, Jesus, after he had demonstrated by way of sign that it's not the kingdom that the people need, it's him and he is ready to give himself to the people. He is ready to, like breaking bread and passing it out. Everybody gets their fill of Jesus. He tells his disciples, now I need to teach you something else. Go down to the boat, get into the boat. And Jesus, he's, he's God, so he probably knew this. But who's master over the wind and over the waves? God himself. God stirs up a storm. God brings the dark. And here's these disciples out on the lake, all alone, without Jesus in this dangerous place. Why are they there in the storm? Because God put them there. God curates our life. Now, sometimes when we think about life getting hard, like the storms of life, we think about going through difficult situations. I know that in my mind, I, I kind of think about it like the Jonah story. If life gets hard or I'm in some kind of storm, you know, metaphorically, oh, that's because I've disobeyed God. That's because I did something bad. And what do I need to do to get right with God so my life gets easy again? Yeah, sometimes God, and we saw it in Jonah, sometimes God brings a storm into your life in order to get your attention so that you will repent and, and turn around and stop doing a bad thing. But we see in this story that sometimes God brings storms, dark times, dangerous times into the lives of his people, not because they did something bad, but just because. Just because. The disciples here weren't in sin. They didn't do anything bad. In fact, they had just like 
worshipped Jesus on this mountain. They just ate their fill. They just expressed faith. Jesus says, okay, get out of here. Go meet me at the car. And then he doesn't show up. And all of a sudden, they're in a terrible storm. God curates the environments in our lives. Now, why is this so important for us to grasp and to remember? I remember having a conversation with a friend one time who was deciding, he was in the middle of deciding to walk away from Christianity. And it was a really hard time for him, and we had this conversation. And he was sharing with me, I was very privileged to hear his story, he was sharing with me what was going on. But I asked him, I said, why, why do you want to walk, why do you, why do you not want to believe anymore? And he said, well, I, um, I used to believe, and then I went through this really hard time uh, with a girl, and I got really down and really depressed, and I prayed that God would make me feel better, and that God would make it better, and he did it. So I, I guess I guess I don't believe anymore. And I think that many of us know people, or maybe some of us ourselves, have lost faith or are losing faith because we think on some level that if we cry out to God, he's going to make things better for us. That if you have faith, your life will be good. You have health and wealth, or at least a good time. And we see in this story, you can be faithful. You can have uh, experiences with God. You can be a, a good disciple of Jesus. And you find yourself in storms that are big, scary, and dangerous. And sometimes God himself is the person who sent you there. That's what he does. Now, why does he do that? Does he do that because he's cruel? Or because he toys with us? No. God curates the environments of our lives so that we would be able to see Jesus, receive Jesus, and believe in Jesus at every turn. So we'd be able to see him. Look at verse 17. Just before that. Yeah, 17. Uh, by now it was dark. Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water. And they were frightened. When they had rowed about three or four miles, when it was dark, when the wind was strong, at this point they saw Jesus approaching the boat and he was walking on water. I, I want to invite you to get the image in your mind. They see Jesus walking on water. Okay. Okay, that's a miracle. Yes, let's all acknowledge that. Uh, some of us might be thinking, did that really happen or did it not happen? Just forget about it. We're not trying to prove or disprove this. We're trying to hear John's account of this sign and interpret what it might mean for us. So we can try to prove or disprove it later. What does it what is John trying to teach us? They see Jesus, and as far as they understand it, and they're not dumb because many of them are sea-faring people, fishermen. Here's Jesus walking on water. What do they see? They see a human being in the darkness of the storm exercising absolute mastery over the created order. They see Jesus, the man, the human being that they know, He's walking, 
as we human beings do. He's not floating. He's not flying. He's not hovering. He's walking. That's how we move as human beings. And he's walking on the water. Absolute mastery over the created order. Ancient world, the water, the sea, especially in a storm, it symbolizes what? Chaos, the unknown, evil, wildness. Who, who is the only person who has absolute mastery over the chaos and the unknown and the darkness of the sea? Well, only, it's God, the creator. He created it, only he has mastery over it. And here they see a human being doing a God thing, doing what no other human can do, what no angel can do, what no spirit can do, what no ghost can do, absolute mastery over the sea. But it's Jesus. They know him. Remember how in John's gospel, we're in chapter 6, and if you've been with us through this, since the prologue, it's like every single chapter, almost every single story, somewhere in there, John is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And as far as John is concerned, Jesus' God-humanness, which is what John calls his glory, is the key to everything. Matthew's gospel, Matthew focuses on Jesus as the faithful people of God. Luke's gospel, he focuses on the forensic evidence that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Mark's gospel focuses on delivering the message in a succinct way. John's gospel focuses on Jesus is God human. That's the big idea of the whole gospel. And here in this story, the disciples look at Jesus and what do they see? They see very clearly something that can be nothing other than God-human. He has a name. He has a face. Is it a ghost? No, it's Jesus. Take him into the boat. We know him. Absolute mastery over the wind and waves. Why were they able to see that? Why were they able to see him that way? Only because they were out in the middle of the water and because it was dark and because of the waves and because of the storm. If it was the middle of the day on a pleasure cruise, if they were up on the mountain with him, if they were walking through a field, would they see Jesus in this glory from this perspective? Not like this. They had to go into the storm to see Jesus in this way as human being, Lord and master of the storm. God curates our environment so we would see Jesus. Oh, and then Jesus, when he shows up, they call out to him and he says, here I am. And it says they begin to let him in the boat. That phrase, when he says, here I am, actually in the Greek that John wrote this in, it's actually what Jesus says is the words, I am. Like God is the great I am. Here's Jesus walking on two legs saying, I am God human. So do you see it? God curates our environment. Sometimes that means darkness and storm and big scary. Why? So we would see Jesus from that perspective because there's pieces of his glory that we can only see from there. And then once they see him, what do they do? They're able to receive him. 
So as they begin to let him into the boat. Now they're receiving Jesus differently here than they received him up on the mountain when they took the bread. Because they're seeing him differently. If we talk about when we received Jesus, I could tell I, I don't remember the first time I received Jesus. But I could tell you a few times in my life where I had real big, like, I'll never forget them, experiences of praying and asking Jesus to come into my life. There's two big ones. Some of you might have something like that. Some of you have a conversion story where you remember receiving Jesus for the first time. Well, as Christians, those things are beautiful and wonderful, and we need to hold on to them. But we also need to remember that receiving Jesus is something that God calls us to do every single time we get a vision of him. Every single time we see a new piece of his glory. Every single time God shows him to us, we receive him. I love that it says that once they were ready to receive him into the boat, they were at their destination. That reminds us that, or that teaches us that the whole point of this whole thing was for them to get to the place where they said, yeah, come into you. God, human, water, walker, the Jesus we know, come into our boat and they arrive. What does it mean to grow into Christian maturity? What does it mean to, to arrive in life? Does it mean that you're outwardly successful? No. Does it mean that you become the smartest theological person in the room? No. Does it mean that you become the greatest agent of peace and justice in the world? Not necessarily. What does it mean to be mature in your faith? Well, it means to be at a place where at every turn with all of your heart, you say to Jesus in every moment, come into the boat. And as he gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your mind and heart, God, by his grace, enables you to say, yes, I receive you. Yes, I receive you. I receive you on the mountain. I receive you in the storm. I receive you there. I receive you here. I receive you again and again and again. And that's what it means to arrive. And then to believe. Receiving is believing. And our story ends with Jesus saying that the work of God in your life is that you believe. That's really important. Because it takes us right back to the beginning of this whole thing where the people tried to crown Jesus as king and they walked away. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I struggle with as a Christian is I have all of these hopes and dreams about what the kingdom of God, the fulfillment of everything he's promised is going to be like, and I think it should be like that right now. And in a way, it should. The world is broken. And it shouldn't be that way. People are unjust and cruel, and they shouldn't be that way. Life is hard. It shouldn't be that way. But sometimes I get caught up in thinking, if this thing would change, if this thing would change, if we could have world peace, if we didn't get sick, if we all made enough money, if the government got straightened out, if my friends all believed, if our church could grow a little bit, um, Then, then, then that's it. That's, that's everything we could ever hope for. And those are all good things. 
But what is God doing in my life right now? What is God doing in your life right now? What is God doing in our church right now? Well, he's promised the whole kingdom. But what is he doing now? He is doing whatever it takes to get you and I to a place where we look at Jesus with the little faith we have and we see him as God, human, glorious Lord and King and we say, it's you that we want. Forget everything else, just you. Even in the storm, even in the dark, even out in the middle of nowhere, if we could have him, that's everything. Sometimes the greatest threat to our faith, the purity of our faith, the legitimacy of our religion, is not the big, scary, big sinner stuff out there. No. It's the visions of the kingdom that we have in here that we look to and crowd Jesus out. We trade the greatest thing, the greatest person for good things. Do you see it? So what does God do? Well, he curates and manages our life. He leads us through the storm.